I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today, I'm speaking with Alexei Zakharov, CEO and founder of Otter Finance, a mobile Web3 wallet built on Solana, which is sort of a Venmo for crypto. Otter offers users the experience of a modern bank minus the bank. As a decentralized platform, Otter doesn't custody users' assets, which eliminates the possibility of a traditional bank failure. But using USDC as its primary medium of exchange, Otter also decreases the friction of international money transfers and makes USD-based savings accounts easily accessible to people in international economies. Otter's vision of so-called banking 3.0 is not entirely new. But without functional day-to-day use cases like direct deposit or the ability to write a check, the notion of using blockchains to go truly bankless is more of an ideological statement than a practical decision. Unless your landlord takes crypto, it's pretty hard to go bankless. But Otter's user-friendly features foreshadow a future where millions of people, both consumers and merchants alike, will engage in daily transactions using blockchain. If the average Otter user has no idea what Solana is after a year of using the platform, Alexi considers that a UX UI victory. But the core question here is this. Can Banking 3.0 offer a compelling enough vision to migrate ordinary users to a new platform? Are consumers willing to learn a new transactional paradigm, one which gives them more control, but also more responsibility? Alexi seems to think so. He describes the many incentives behind adopting a product like Otter, especially in emerging markets outside of the US. We also discuss the role of deposit insurance in Web3, if blockchains will ever have an FDIC equivalent, and more. If you want to get in touch with episode suggestions or thoughts in general, reach out to us at validated.solana.org. Let's dive in. Alexi, welcome to Validated. Oh, thanks for having me, Austin. So we're going to talk about the evolution of digital banking or banking 3.0. We're going to talk about Otter and some of the problems it's solving in the digital banking space. But first, I want to start out with your own journey into building crypto consumer products. My understanding is you worked on Cash App's integration of crypto. So my focus there was around Bitcoin and how we can use Bitcoin to scale Cash App internationally. So tell me a little bit more about that. I think most people were surprised when Cash App took a hard turn into crypto, right? It, the, the, the natural expansion point there, if you're following like the Venmo trajectory or the TransferWise trajectory is to say, okay, we're going to add more fiat currencies and we're going to try and figure out ways that we can make it easy for people to move fiat. But Cash App jumped pretty quickly into Bitcoin. What was the primary driver of that thesis? I think at the time when it was pioneered, it was just an experiment to see how people will react. And it turned out to be a lot of interest to have a mixture of regular fiat and cryptocurrency in the same app. And with Cash App, the philosophy was to just limit it to Bitcoin. I think the big problem Cash App was facing and I think is still facing is when you go to new markets around the world, you almost have to rebuild the product from ground up when you enter each single country. Because whenever a company is in custody of the funds, then the regulation basically is slightly different on each single market. And then, yeah, the, the whole idea was, what if you replace USD with Bitcoin as a foundation? Can you replicate all the basic functions of Cash App and build more complicated features yeah, what did you learn through that process of like working on Bitcoin at Cash App that like 
convinced you that there was something worth digging into here and also kind of informed the way that you've thought about this space going forward? Yeah, I think the basic idea of using a digital asset as a kind of universal foundation to scale something like Cash Up, I think is very valid. The problem I faced at Cash Up is that one, when you take Bitcoin as a foundation, you face more barriers around the world because its price is volatile relative to local currencies, which is why while I was there, I was getting more and more bigger proponent for USD stablecoin because when you're trying to deliver a product based on USD stablecoin, you just have to go through less barriers comparing to like trying to convince everyone to use this new digital asset, but also to learn about the, that digital asset at the same time. And I think another issue with the original approach was that since Cash App is actually a custodian of Bitcoin, you face a lot of similar regulation on international markets like you are still a bank. So I think another key part that I learned, if you actually want to make it successfully, ideally you should put self-custody to the core of the product since, since the day one. So in short, my biggest takeaways was it have to be self custody and ideally it will use stablecoin instead of a volatile asset like Bitcoin as, as a foundation. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So talk a little bit about how these ideas have impacted what you're building now at Otter. Yeah, I think growing up outside of the uh, United States, I was exposed to like local currency crisis and just in general felt how hard it is for people to get access to like common things like a dollar savings account. And when it comes to like transacting between countries, it's always feel like there is like a huge wall. And I think through my experience at Cash App and this inspiration to deliver universally accessible financial access to people all around the world that will work seamlessly, it really inspired me. And I think one other thing that was always important for me is the idea of ownership of your money. Because with all modern financial systems, you typically delegate full ownership of your funds to a third party, like a bank, brokerage, crypto exchange. And I think people don't realize how fragile it is because as soon as there is like some major economic or political event, you have a huge risk of actually losing everything. And in 90s, my family lost all their savings. And I think having this memory really pushed me to this like mission of building a product where people could safely keep their money and be sure that whatever happens with the government or with the company, they will always keep access to their funds. You have an interesting thesis about where you think wallets and the interconnect between wallets and things that happen off-chain are headed. I'd love to talk a little bit about this idea of like banking 3.0. How do you kind of define this and what do you see as the problem space it's trying to address relative to like versions of banking that came before? Yeah, so by concept of banking 3.0, I mean the idea that you can replicate everything that you expect from a modern bank, but under the hood, it will use combination of a stable coin and something like 
fast blockchain like Solana. This way, your stablecoin balance that you can keep on Solana will be equivalent of your checking account. Then through Solana blockchain, you can send payments to anyone around the world free and instantly. And through DeFi instruments, you can get access to ability to save, earn interest in dollars, and also invest into various assets. So I think where we probably going to in like next 10 years, and I hope we will get there, is that we will have a lot more real assets tokenized and available on a blockchain like Solana. And in terms of problems, I think Banking 3.0 solves three fundamental problems. Problem number one, it basically eliminate bank failures. And this year was kind of exemplary for that, where we had several major banks, Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, Signature, that completely failed because of the mismanagement of the funds by those banks. And what keeping your stable coins on the blockchain does basically prevent this idea of delegating your funds to a third party to manage. So by the nature of how it works, it completely eliminates this idea of a failure of, of a bank. Because at this point, you never actually give your money to the bank. And as a result, there is no third party to fail. I think the second big problem is universally better access to USD and potentially other currencies like Euro. So a lot of countries right now going through a local currency crisis, and it's usually only rich people who have access to foreign bank accounts, while like regular people typically either have no access to buy dollars or this access is significantly limited by both banks and government. So I think here, like having this open standard for dollars, which is a stable coin and then open rails to purchase them creates a much more accessible way to do it. And finally, I think international payments are still very broken. I think every time I send money to someone in another country, it's like sending it to a black box and then you just hope that money will arrive. And it also comes with a lot of extra fees, which are very predatory in a lot of countries. Yeah, it's definitely interesting when you think about that from the perspective of why international payments are still so hard. And I guess for me, a lot of that comes down to not the process of moving money, right? Moving money internationally is actually fairly easy. It's getting it out that's harder, right? The classic example of like, I can put my debit card into almost any ATM in the world and I can get local currency out. There may be a very large fee associated with it, right? But the actual movement of money and value around the world, even in the Web 2 and Web 0 rails, is, is pretty good at this point. It's really where that in, the rest of the fee structure comes into play that's really challenging there. So how are you thinking about sort of that, right? There, there's this version of crypto where I think you saw a lot of folks who, you know, were maybe in places like Venezuela or Ukraine able to say, I kept most of my net worth in stable coins or crypto on my ledger, and that made it so I could pick up and leave when something happened. Whether that was Russia invading, or that's just like the economic opportunity in Venezuela isn't what we're hoping it would be. They can, you know, if, if their value is in Bitcoin, they can take that and leave. If their value is in USDC, they can take that and leave. But 
that's a little bit different of a thesis in terms of that store of wealth than like banking, right? Banking is about daily transactions. It's about paying for your rent. It's about paying for, you know, anything else that you might have to in the world as opposed to like that sort of long-term store of value thesis that like Bitcoin has or keeping money in USDC on a ledger. Like you're not going to the coffee shop or buying an iPhone or, you know, maybe you're buying a house with USDC, Mm -hmm. but like it's not for daily transactions. So where do you see that gap being bridged and kind of how do you, what's your worldview and what that looks like? Yeah, I I think you're right. There's definitely a big gap in terms of day-to-day usage. I think a lot of, players in wallet space right now, they are trying to separate themselves from existing traditional financial system. And I think what we actually trying to do differently with Otter, we understand that for us to get the mass adoption, the big focus should be a flawless integration with traditional financial system. So holding USDC will be no different from holding USD on your checking account. And that's why one of the recent big features that we released was a direct banking integration with banks in the United States. And after that release, uh, you can use Otter to like move money between any banks in US back and forth with zero fees. And what we've learned through this experience, it's actually a lot of hard work that I think a lot of players in our industry don't want to even start. But I think it's actually achievable, including the ability to like release eventually a debit card, which will solve what you're talking about, your day-to-day usage, where you can go to coffee shop and actually spend it. Yeah, because this was the thing that like, I-, I will say, I went looking for this two, three years ago, right? I was working at Bison Trails, um, which is a blockchain infrastructure company that ended up getting acquired by Coinbase. This is before I joined the Solana ecosystem. And, you know, everyone kept talking about, oh, you can go unbanked, right? There's literally a podcast called Bankless. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how do I go bankless? And it was like, well, look, you can get a ledger. You can put your money in this thing. I'm like, awesome. How do I pay my mortgage? Everyone's like, well, actually, wait a minute. You you need to like send a paper check to here. I'm like, okay, great. Are there any crypto things that let me send a paper check? And the answer is like objectively no. Are there any crypto things that let me uh, you know, send a direct deposit? No. And this was granted, this was three years ago. But like the thing that I'm really curious about here is the the concept of banking 3.0, of being able to have a self-custody Web3 bank that can operate with the traditional financial industry, at least to some capacity, is a very old vision. It's a very old objective. And we still seem to be very far away from that reality. Would you agree with that? Or am I kind of behind the times in terms of what's now possible? Like, is there a service out there that I can keep self-custody of funds in and then also send a direct deposit out of today? No, I agree with you that this is something that is a, still a big problem, but this is exactly a problem we are solving. And you just mentioned direct deposit. Actually, today, if you are in the United States, you can get direct deposit with Otter. You can set up your regular paycheck. We provide you account and routing numbers that you can give to your payroll provider. So the money arrives, we automatically convert it to USDC and then immediately put it into your wallet. In the future, we have this amazing technologies like Solana Pay, where you can go 10 years from now to a coffee shop and directly pay through Solana blockchain. 
Yeah. But I think in between, there is a lot of hard work to actually make your like self-custody stablecoin wallet to be integrated with both like debit card rails and banking rails so you can actually use it. So you can slowly start moving away from keeping your money in the bank, but actually keeping your money in the wallet and get all this protection from both like government and corporate failures that we observe in more and more in uh, recent years. Yeah. I mean, I think this is kind of like the the crux of a lot of this, at least for me, like the process of using blockchain is more complicated than the average person today can use. And look, some of this is just generational. If you compare the average millennials technology competence to that of the average baby boomers, it's not that millennials are genetically better at using computers, but they learned how to use software at a young age. And it's not something they had to learn later on in life. And so we saw that transition kind of take place over over time. I think you're seeing kind of a very funny version of this now where like a lot of Gen Z is coming into office culture and not knowing how to use like a file browser or network mm -hmm. storage because they've grown up with iPhones and iPads and like the file system's completely abstracted away. And so I think we're, we're going to get to a place with crypto too where it's like that journey of like everyone's going to know how to use a seed vault. Everyone's going to know how to keep a seed phrase safe. They're going to know how to use a ledger. They're going to know how to sign transactions because that's just a cultural change we've seen the same way that like I heard a very funny phrase like a few months ago, which is the millennial pause, mm -hmm. which is like for millennials, which I am, we hit record, we wait a second, <laughs> then we start talking because like the old days, the recorders were slow. You press the button and it had to start up. And now it's like record talk. It's like the Gen Z thing. It's just instant. I think we'll get there with crypto. But in the meantime, how do you think we go about simplifying some of that technology stack to make it more accessible for folks especially folks who are, are maybe coming to crypto with a pre-existing view of how technology should work. Yeah, that's a great point. I personally believe that there are a lot of things that are right now exposed to customers in terms of like technical details of how blockchain work. And I think they should be hidden and kind of move on the infrastructure level rather than being surfaced on the interface level. And within Otter, we are solving several of them. Number one, when you register with Otter, you actually don't need to even save your seed phrase somewhere manually. What we do behind the scenes, we encrypt it on your device and make a backup to your personal iCloud or Google Drive. We essentially trying to follow all the best practices you would manually do if you use a wallet, but then do it in a way that is completely transparent. So you just, from, from user experience, you just log in with your phone number, confirm your email, maybe set up a 2FA. But behind the scene, that gives us opportunity to encrypt everything on device and then save to your personal iCloud or Google Drive to preserve all benefits of self-custody. I think another example of that is gas fees. If you're like trying to send money to a friend, you don't need to purchase Solana ahead of time to be able to do it. Uh, and thankfully, Solana has the right abstraction on a technical level that allowed us to do it. And I think finally on that technical issue level, like mo most of the wallets are now transacting based on the wallet addresses. And this is definitely not something I think most of customers expect from a payment app.
that's why it's very important to have a concept of profile, have a ability to like give enough confidence that this is the actual person you're trying to transact with. And that's another thing we do. Like when you create a wallet with us, you have your profile. If you actually did KYC, you can even get a verified check mark. So it will still look and feel like you're using Cash App or Venmo. So you can start with essentially zero knowledge of what Solana is. And yeah, I think we will be successful if after a year of usage, you still don't know. So let's zoom out for a second here. Why should someone want to use this? Like at, at a high level, you're building a product for people who are not terribly familiar with crypto to make the onboarding easier, to make the experience easier. It's awesome, right? We definitely need more of that. But a lot of people join crypto for ideological reasons. They join it for technology reasons, right? This is why this space is so full of builders and quite frankly, so full of podcasts. But the folks you're trying to reach, it's a, it's a real utility-based usage. What is their reason for saying, I'm going to bother trying to learn blockchain, or this is going to give me something I can't get elsewhere? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there is slightly different use cases in states and outside of states. So I think in states, by using a product like this, you essentially get unlimited insurance from bank failures and potentially in future protection from um, censorship as well. Because we now see that a lot of people who are trying to say something that is not fully aligned with government are often deplatformed from major products like YouTube. And together with being deplatformed as an influencer, you also often lose access to actually get any financial support from your audience as well. Another thing in US, there are like certain industries like dispensaries that are not federally legal, but legal on a state level. And while they're legal on a state level, they often have no access to banking products because banking products don't want to do anything with a business that is not federally legal. So as a result, a lot of these businesses are operating purely in cash. And I think using something like combination of stablecoin and blockchain gives them essentially an equivalent of that banking product that they can rely on. There's like a very strange thing going on where suddenly like, so New York just legalized marijuana dispensaries like a little while ago. And there's, there's, there's a bunch of popped up now. They all take credit cards. It's very interesting to see, you know, something in the risk assessment there has changed where that's now something that's like possible. Credit card companies now are comfortable accepting transactions, or at least they're comfortable looking the other way, right? I think uh, if you've ever tried to sign up for an exchange in the United States, the amount of KYC you have to go through in order to buy a Bitcoin is astronomically higher than the amount of KYC you have to go through to buy marijuana, which is literally not. Like, maybe you have to show a driver's license to prove age. I think that's fascinating. So how do you think we get to a place where both individuals and institutions feel more comfortable working with products like stable coins. Because this is kind of like, this is really key, right? I, I think what you're getting at is like really true here that there's so much inefficiency in, you know, I have to make sure 
I send a wire transfer before a certain time of day to make sure it arrives the same day, or if not, it'll arrive next day. Like, that is pretty wild in 2023. At the same time, none of these incumbents seem particularly motivated to change that. I've always found that to be a really interesting dichotomy there. I think it's a hard problem, especially since a lot of costs are often hidden from the customer and they imposed on the merchant. So like right now, when you pay anywhere in United States, the merchant have to spend at least 3% of all the income on just the existing payment rails. And I think what's slightly different in a lot of countries outside of the US, merchants often expose that fee to the customer. And then the customer like, oh, okay, well, maybe I will use a debit card or I will use a cash instead because yeah. I don't want to pay this 3%. And I think in terms of like day-to-day purchase, I think the biggest driver could be if there will be some realization on the merchant side that they can educate their customers that they have to pay this invisible tax. So I think that's one thing. I think the second thing I previously mentioned is that keeping your money on blockchain gives you an infinite insurance from bank failures. Because right now you're insured up to 250,000 technically. So if you hold anything more in the bank and it will fail, then that money will be gone. So yeah, I I think we are like, in that sense, we are very privileged in US. But if you actually go outside of the US, the level of banking guarantees are so much lower or not existent at all. And I think that's why for us, it's important to also deliver a very similar value, not just in US, but outside. Because I think that's what I was hinting originally is that outside of United States, there is a very strong practical use case. One is that you either have limited access to buy dollars. For example, in Argentina, your bank can allow you to only buy either 500 or 1,000 a month and nothing more than that. So literally, if you want to protect yourself, you have to either go to black market of cash USD or now you have access to stable coins on crypto rails. For a lot of digital nomads and remote workers who earn in USD, it's a much better way to receive this money. And may, and what we're hoping to deliver for them value, it's a better way to store these dollars. So let's say if you are in Brazil and you receive those dollars, we want to provide you a set of benefits that will encourage you to keep it in your wallet rather than off-ramping it to your local bank. So ideally we want to give you tools to off-ramp anything you need for your day-to-day life, but then all the savings portion could still stay on chain with better guarantees in terms of safety of those funds. 100%. I think this is like one of the strongest cases for stable coins in crypto. How do you bridge that down to the local economy? I think Nigeria and Kenya both have a very robust pay from your cell phone economy system. And that's like largely payment via SMS. My understanding is the way you load that is you go to a guy and you give him some cash and he loads money onto your phone for you and then sort of settles up with the the company on the back end. How do we bridge that gap between the technical ability to send money anywhere in the world and then the requirement to be able to spend that money once it has arrived in that destination? 
Yeah, I think in a lot of countries around the world, we can deliver a product similar to what we have in states where you can flawlessly move money between your local bank and the wallet. In other countries like Nigeria, I think it's very important to think of maybe a P2P model of exchange. So then you could have both consumers who essentially want to like either load money in or take money out of the wallet. And then you have sort of like a layer of ambassadors that go through maybe some hard steps of finding the best way to convert local currency into stablecoin. And then they can efficiently like take cash or like take local payment transfer and then give people stablecoin in the end. Uh, and I think that's how Binance, for example, solve this on and off ramps on all those markets where you don't have reliable on and off ramps. That's definitely a thing we want to explore. And I think that could enable access much further. Yeah, it's interesting to look at kind of the way different folks are coming about solving this. And the international payment piece is definitely one of the, the really interesting parts. How have you thought about the merchant integration side of this? Like you, you were mentioning that in, in many markets internationally, it's very common for the purchaser to pay the fee on the payment method of choice. Do you think that like the savings of two and a half or 3% is a big enough motivator for folks to learn the rails of crypto? Yeah, I, I, I think it definitely is. And I also noticed that, especially like after living in Mexico for several months, People often can even use something like Square Terminal to manage the inventory of the coffee shop. But then in the end, they have a bunch of different terminals to take payment from you. And I think since there is a culture... Yeah, it's always yeah, funny. I think since there is a culture of separation between this inventory management and then a terminal that accepts the money, I think it's much easier barrier to provide them a tool to accept it. But I think you still need to figure out a way first to popularize it on consumer side, because if consumer, let's say in some of those countries will learn about stable coin, will keep some of their savings there, then you can go to like a merchant stage. And I think merchants will quickly figure out what product to use to accept that money. And essentially eliminate that invisible 3% tax just based on old payment technology we have to go through. So one of the things that's very common in the United States, at least, is FDIC insurance. And this is one of the real stable underpinnings of why people trust banks, right? The, the idea that a bank, if you have below a certain threshold or now potentially any amount of money in a bank, there is a government backstop on this thing. And FDIC is like semi-private, semi-public. Banks pay very high fees to be a part of it. It's not like a something that the government fully funds. It's, it's in theory, over the long term, it's paid for by the fees of using banks. So do you think that it's possible something gets built similar in crypto? Like, would you ever look at offering deposit insurance for a non-custodial product? Like, how do we bridge that gap between the desire for folks to have stuff that is self-custodied, but also the desire to have some form of security around it. And that might be an insurmountable goal. It's a great question. So I think we should 
understand that insurance that bank provides now, it's the insurance basically from the failure of that bank. And as I said, you are protected up to 250,000. And having this insurance from a bank failure has actually a high cost for both banks. And if the failure takes a really high scale, it ends up being a tax on regular taxpayers in the United States. So when you think about like keeping your stable coins on chain, you actually already have that insurance and it's actually unlimited, as I said, because when you keep your dollars on chain, there is no third party that you have delegated your money to. And as a result, you don't need to ensure that this third party won't lose your money. I think what people are mixing up is that this insurance and protection from, let's say, a security incident. And security incidents doesn't only happen in wallet space. They also happen with the banks as well. And FDIC insurance actually doesn't protect you from your funds being stolen by a hacker from your bank. Because if the funds will be stolen by a hacker from your bank, nobody will give you back the money. There will be an investigation and the money could not be only recovered if that investigation will lead to catching that hacker that get your money out. So I think in a way, I think in terms of insurance, blockchain gives it out of the box. In terms of some protection from security incident, I think both banks and wallet space could start thinking about like how they can give certain guarantees against security incidents. So I think it's more like should be a purchase, like you have a car insurance. So when you have a car insurance, you pay for the fact that you could get into accident. So I think with this security insurance, you pay some premium for the fact that you could be hacked. And it's actually very interesting because back at Cash App, we worked on like getting this security insurance for the custodied Bitcoin. And it was pretty complicated because as a centralized custodian, if amount of the crypto your company holds grow exponentially, at some point you actually cannot insure it at all. Right. You, you, like at first you start like sending the portions of your crypto to different custodians and kind of get the maximum insurance there. But then at some point it's very limited. We ran into this with Bison Trails too, where it was, you know, Bison Trails for, for a little while was offering slashing insurance. And it was incredibly hard to find anyone who would bond slashing insurance, even though there were, you could not you know, piece, you could look at the uptime history of the nodes that Bison Trails was running and say like, oh, this is a pretty good infrastructure provider. We're probably fine here. But that was a tricky thing to try and navigate. So I, I hear you when it comes to insurance. It's, it's, it's very much a weird piece here. Yeah. But, but I'm hopeful that when you actually move away from centralized custody, where you keep billions of dollars in a single place that could fail, you actually spread the risk across all small individual customers. So then insuring in each individual yeah. customer is actually possible comparing to insuring a centralized custodian that just keep everything together. I would just like to highlight, I think when it comes to comparison with FDIC insurance, blockchain actually provides you unlimited insurance in this case. When it comes to security insurance, 
I think that's another product both bank and wallet providers could develop. Uh, but I think that product will have to be paid for because it, it works exactly like car insurance that you pay for the guarantees that if you will get into an accident, you'll be safe. So what are you guys working on now? What, what's coming next? Yeah, so we continue our focus on building a very cost-efficient off-ramps in countries around the world. So we're hoping that by this autumn, we will have cost-efficient off-ramps across entire Europe and in some selected countries in uh, Latin America. And if things will go well in selected countries in Asia as well. I'm also like pretty excited about this practical use case in dispensaries in states. So we would want to pilot that adoption as well. I think the missing piece right now is with our banking product, you actually have to wait for two days for funds to settle because ACH takes two days for money to, yes, to, to be transferred. But then for smaller amounts, if let's say someone just want to spend something in a specific physical location, we could take that risk and allow them to instantly deposit this money from a bank. Yeah, so I, I think we will have that pilot as well somewhere closer to July. And I would be really curious to see that customers can finally use Solana Pay in physical locations to buy real products. Because I think to my knowledge, maybe if in New York, you can use a credit card in majority of the states, you actually cannot use credit card. And now they even limiting access to debit cards as well. Well, Alexei, thank you for joining us today on Validated. Thanks for having me, Austin. Really excited to be here. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.